wanna be a starving artist I don't wanna be a starving artist I just want to find a way to live You are listening to Starving Artist, the podcast about art, money, how to make those things work together. I'm Anna Easley, and this week I've got one of the very first interviews I ever did for this podcast, and it's with Bree Lee. Bree is a freelance writer from Queensland, Australia. She's also the creator of Hot Chicks with Big Brains, which is a small crew of rad babes who do heaps of stuff, including a print magazine, a podcast, a blog, all of which focus on hot chicks who have big brains. I recorded this interview this time last year, actually, when a lot was going on for Brie. She had just quit her stable law job to become a freelance writer. And in just the two months prior to this interview, actually, she'd won a fellowship, scored herself a literary agent, and was at that very time in the middle of shopping around her first manuscript to a small pile of publishing houses. I had no damn idea how one goes about selling their first book, but Brie was kind enough to sit down with me and school me on all the aspects of it, but in particular, how to maximize interest in your work, how to find your community, and how money becomes a different kind of priority when your previous job felt like having braces on your soul. Just a note, during this interview, we talk about a video series Brie did for Writer's Block. Writer's Block is a website for writers that's nice, not the dreaded lack of inspiration that's not so nice. You can find that video series and everything else we mention in the show notes at starvingartistpodcast.com. Let's hop to it. Bree, the reason I wanted to interview you, particularly at this moment, is because a lot is happening for you right yeah. now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> a lot has happened in the past six months. So can you just give us a bit of an idea of what, what has happened for you in the last six months? Oof. Okay, so in January this year, um, I quit the legal profession. Um, mm. I finished up my work as a judge's associate and I transitioned to writing full-time. I just jumped off the edge of that cliff. And in January this year was also approximately when I was announced as the recipient of the Cat Musket Fellowship. And so that fellowship really helped catapult me into the future that I had been setting up for myself much quicker and with a lot more support than I otherwise would have had. And so that's like hugely to thank for how far along I am now in the process of writing my first manuscript and trying to get it published. About three weeks ago, I sent out a book proposal with a couple of sample chapters to publishers. And now while I'm here in Melbourne, I'm meeting with five publishers and next week, another couple in, I think another two in Sydney. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's, so I'm here for all, I'm also doing five events here at the Emerging Writers Festival. And I'm just in this delightfully anxious, excited phase <laughs> where I don't know who, if anyone, or how many people want my book. Can you tell us a little bit about, you mentioned the Cat Musket Fellowship, and you were the first recipient of this award, because it's brand new. 
And you said you got a lot of support from the award. What what kind? Can you give me details about what kind of support? Absolutely. So the prize for the fellowship was three thousand dollars that you could choose what you wanted to like allocate that to. And part of the application process was explaining like what you thought you wanted to spend the money on and why that was like. You know, they wanted to see that you had given a lot of thought to to what that money might mean for you. And I thought it was interesting. I got the fellowship and none of the things that I put in my proposal that I wanted to spend money on were the things that I did. And I really just put my trust in the fellowship committee and their knowledge of the situation. And now I'm really glad I did because one of the best things that I was able to spend that money on was paying my mentors. So I had sort of reached out either deliberately or sort of by accident, fallen into really like unofficial, like casual friend-based mental relationships with a couple of people, then when I got this fellowship, it meant that I could pay them for their time. And that means that now I can bug them at all hours of the day and the night with Ah! really stupid (laughs) questions and they have to answer them immediately and confidentially. (laughs) No, but... So I really can't speak highly enough of Liam Peeper. He's my, I call him my like official sort of structural mentor. And so, for example, when I had drafts of my sample chapters to send out with my book proposal, he's the one that really read them from top to tail and provided really comprehensive editing style feedback on them. And then I also, so he's in Melbourne here, obviously, but then I also have Chrissy Neen, who is equally as amazing and incredible, and she's in Brisbane. And it's really nice for me to have another woman in Brisbane and we just go and sit together and write and I can just interrupt her and ask her questions and Chrissy answers the questions I have that are more about the difficulties that come with trying to write your first book rather than what that book actually comes out like. Does that make sense? Like, So yeah, I have Chrissy more for the process and for me as a writer, but I have Liam for my writing. Wow, that's such a great collection of individuals. Mm, I'm so, so grateful. The guidance that they give me is easily the most valuable thing that's come out of the fellowship. So I've watched a number of, obviously I've read some of your writing and I've watched a number of your videos and you recently did a series called What Is She Doing? for Writer's Block, (laughs) which was a kind of vlog diary about the process of... Quitting my job and throwing care to the wind. And and one thing that I really recognised from watching those videos is that you seem to have a really good knack for reaching out to people and asking for opportunities. Mm. Yeah, I... I often say that the only reason I started Hot Chicks with Big Brains right at the beginning was so that I could easily convince women to let me into their homes. <laughs> um, and then I just called it Hot Chicks with Big Brains so that when they opened the emails, they would be immediately flattered and, and just more likely to say yes. Of course, I do it for much more noble reasons now. Um, I think there's something really great about starting projects to create the community that you want or to answer the questions Absolutely. that you want. I mean, that's in part what this project and is And that's about. why, like, when you emailed me and I was reading it, I was like, shit, yeah. Like, this sounds – no, it's it's really true. Like, you always get way better results when you're asking people questions that you actually want to know the answers to. And most of the time it's like that lame thing they tell you in class where if you put your hand up, chances are a dozen other people were thinking – the exact same question as well. So speaking of questions that I don't know the answer to, (laughs) so you just recently got 
a literary agent, Curtis Brown. Yes. Tell me about how that came about. So that was the other super duper awesome thing that came out of the Cat Musket Fellowship announcement in particular. My application for the fellowship was that I wanted to write this manuscript and I gave them an example of the body of shorter works that I'd been able to do and said I wanted a fellowship for the structural and emotional support that it could provide me to work on my first actual huge big Moby Dick of a thing. Moby Dick in size, not in any kind of genre or thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But when the press release went out naming me as the fellowship recipient and it has has this huge big photo of me beside it that looks all too glamorous, they put in the press release what my manuscript was going to be about. Off the back of that press release, I had three publishers contact me saying, congratulations. They were all like literally three sentences. It was, congratulations, we like the sound of that manuscript that you mentioned. Please get back in touch with us when it's finished. So the manuscript in question, can you tell us just a tiny bit about what what it is? It's called Eggshell Skull and it's about my year as a judge's associate in the district court in Queensland and using my experiences in the legal system, like as a law student graduate and then working in the court system, and using that year and the things that I directly saw and the things that the other associates saw to paint a bigger picture of the sexism that I think is rife in the justice system as well as the actual legal industry. But back to your original question, just quickly, I took the three interests, the interest from those three publishers, and I was like, no, I'm not going to wait until I finish my manuscript. And I sent an online inquiry form to Curtis Brown. So I was, I did not have high hopes. I just sort of did it on the off chance that someone might monitor that online inquiry box once a month. And I just put in the inquiry box... I just won the Cat Musket Fellowship. I've had three publishers contact me. This is approximately what my manuscript is going to be about. Would anyone at Curtis Brown be interested in representing me? And then I got a response from the dude that obviously monitors that inbox and he said... (laughs) There is someone at the other end. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, And he said, thanks for your email. I'm going to show this around to everyone at Curtis Brown and we'll see if any agent thinks that it fits their bill and that they like the sound of it. And then I got a phone call from Grace, who is now my agent, who is another incredible human being who I cannot speak highly enough of. And we spoke on the phone twice where I just really like went ham explaining what I wanted my book to be like. And I just felt like she really was on the level, like she actually understood what I was trying to do because my book has three very distinct like layers to it and it was going to be tricky and it was borderline stupidly ambitious but she really dug that and now I feel like she's like I have her in my corner you know like it's really great. It sounds like you see this goes back to what I said before it sounds like you do a really good job of asking for stuff putting yourself out there and finding yourself support networks Mm. is that something that's always been in your mind or do you feel like this is a recent thing? I was just always taught that if you don't know how to do something, just go and ask and find somebody that does. What I can say is that, I mean, a waitress for like seven years and like worked in a couple of kitchens and I had a job for a few years in like an admin accounts role at this like funky design agency that was like want to be the next Google. And then I worked in the legal industry and now I have some experience in the writing industry and of all those industries, 
easily, hands down, without a doubt, the riding industry is the most supportive. Anytime I've ever taken any risk, stuck my neck out, asked for help, tried something stupid, like I've leapt and a safety net has appeared. I feel blessed. But it's true. It's lame, but I feel really blessed that the thing that I want to do with the rest of my life just also happens to have the most awesome people in and around it. I think that's particularly important because you're coming from a background which you haven't, from my understanding, you haven't studied writing professionally. No. And often what you get out of studying anything professionally is a good network of people. So I think that that, what you've done is really important. Oh, I should say that I, I started university in a journalism arts degree and then... It was awful. (laughs) And so (laughs) I just panicked at the end of my first year, actually, because I just looked around at a cohort of a thousand people and we'd spent a year with every single one of our lectures telling us that there was like no jobs for any of these people, weren't at all engaging with new media or the internet. And I just panicked and thought that I didn't want to waste four years and then get a degree that doesn't mean anything with no employment prospects. And so knee-jerk response went to the degree that I thought would make me most employable with the most meaning and employment prospects. And that's how I like accidentally ended up graduating from law school. And now it's like, and then I only worked in the industry for one year and now I'm writing. And it's like this weird in the in-between tangent. So can I ask you, this is a personal question, but the reason why I'm interested in having these conversations is because I think it's so difficult to find out information. Mm. And also that still money is a really, it's still a really taboo topic. So it's difficult to find out how much people make. Mm. So can I ask you how much, around about how much were you making in law? I was over the moon with my rate of pay because it was like the first full-time job I'd ever had out of university, out of, yeah, out of uni. And feel like I could confidently say like after tax, the range that an associate might be paid is anywhere between 40 and 60,000 a year. And that seemed to me to be reflective of, for example, approximately what my brother got paid when he graduated from electrical engineering and had his first year in the profession. So I think it's sort of, if you're speaking about like those sort of white collar jobs that require tertiary education, and then there are, like there are very, in a lot of professions like that, there are very obvious graduate jobs for like people who are in their first year out of university. Um, And I think law is about on par with the rest. And what are you looking at in terms of earnings this year now that you've changed <laughs> <laughs> if that's something that's something you want to be open about I mean I imagine I'm assuming that you've saved some of your yeah, money from I your had previous to. job definitely yeah. had to so it's a little bit different because there might be a book deal this year yes and so I'm almost not inclined to count that in my from, you know, just like me keeping tabs on my own finances just so I can track my own progress. I almost don't want to put the book in there because that will just blow it out to a level of income that is not necessarily reflective of something I could do every year. I certainly don't think I'll be writing another (laughs) memoir. But what I can say is that not only for me, but from asking around, it seems like a pretty standard rate for a first memoir or nonfiction book for like a debut author from one of the smaller or medium publishing houses, not one of like the big four or whatever they call them, is about mm. 10K. Yeah, right. Uh, I'm still very new to this. So like someone might be listening being like, who does she think she is? That's not true. Cool, whatever. But that's like what everything I asked around that was 
the standard response. If you have a literary agent, the agent fee is about... On average, I think the industry standard is 15%. Yeah. So does that mean that you would see, oh my gosh, my maths, (laughs) 85%? Yeah. Yeah, I think so, of the advance. The advance is a little bit different to the way royalties work, I think, though, because, like, it sort of gets paid, I think, in, like, two or three lump sums. So say, let's just work off, like, base 10, 10K, you get, often it'll be, like, four on signing book deal and then another three when you present them with the actual manuscript that's workable and then another three when the books hit the shelves. And then it works a little bit differently. If you sell enough copies that you make back that advance, like awesome, amazing, good, 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 and then the royalties come on top of after that if they do. And this is interesting too, actually, because I've been thinking a lot about what I might do if more than one publisher makes an offer, which would be a delightful conundrum to have. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And a good friend of mine whose first book came out, I think two years ago now, said he got a small book advance for a number of reasons. But he said that in his experience, if you demand or go for a really high book advance, in a way you're just like not backing yourself because you would rather take the money up front because you think there's a chance that your book won't actually earn that much. So mm, there's the added risk as well that if you take a really huge book advance and don't make enough back that that looks really bad and you've basically lost the publisher money and then I've had one person tell me that that will sort of get you blacklisted not necessarily with the entire industry but with that publisher but then I'm like I feel conflicted about that because I'm like well a writer will write a book and they think it's the best book because it's their baby and that's totally awesome and the writer is not the industry expert who knows what books sell who knows really the kind of publicity and marketing that the publisher has to throw behind it what month it comes out like that's not the writer's job and if a publisher offers an incredibly large book advance they should know whether or not approximately a writer will have the capacity to make that back so yeah it's I would like to think that I will choose the publisher who I think is best for my book regardless of the money I imagine at this point in your career, that's about investing in your career. Exactly. Which is, it's more important, I imagine at this stage, to be focusing on creating really good Good quality work. work. And I also have the benefit, I think, that like last year I was making like that full-time money and that was the first time I'd ever had that level of money. It was not making me happy. And I remember at a lot of points through last year, I was like, well, I would rather go go back to having not much money and being able to actually do what I enjoy and not have to do this stuff that's really like heavy and that I don't enjoy. And so now it would be, it's only been six months, it would be way too soon for me to start prioritising money over my craft. Yeah, totally. I think you bring up a really good point. There's a Paul Graham article, which I'll link to in the show notes, which is, it's definitely coming from a particular place, but it's the idea at the top of your mind. And he talks about the idea that in startup culture, the big problem is that most people who are starting things, the idea at the top of their mind is money, when what it should be is user experience. But that basically means making really good work rather Mm. than trying to make money, Mm. because you need to have the work there to get an audience and to get 
consumers or whatever it is that you need on the other side. Well, if you make good work, then your consumers are your readers and... Like, that's, yeah, that's totally relevant. I think it's Murakami who said that his readers is probably one of the biggest relationships he could invest in over a long period of time that would pay him back in turn. Wow. I actually got a quote from you from one of your videos. Oh, boy. (laughs) You said, law was like having braces on my soul. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. I don't know if you've had braces before, but when you first get them on, they're painful, but they're kind of itchy. And it's this sensation of, like, like literally they're bracing your teeth and like pushing them into a, a shape that they do not naturally exist in and that is both painful and frustrating and a little bit claustrophobic because you can't just take them off if they get too frustrating you can't just take them off if the pain becomes unbearable well this is pushing the metaphor i don't think anyone would take them off because they <laughs> please decide push they it. please push i don't it. think anyone take braces off because they decide that their teeth were better the way they were before but anyway yeah that's how it felt Definitely. To go back to publishing for a moment, Mm. I was just wondering, what do you think are the pros and cons of having a literary agent? Because there's that other option of pushing around your manuscript yourself. Mm. This is interesting too, because similar to something I said before, when I was trying to decide whether or not I would sign with an agent, I went around and asked a bunch of people because I was like, I don't know the answer. I'll go and find people that do. I feel like Um, if anyone's learned anything from this episode, (laughs) it's just ask some questions. Yeah, totally. And the overwhelming response I actually got was either ambivalence, borderline apathy or negativity towards the idea of an agent because – It's not like in America you need an agent to be able to reach the publishers because they don't take like manuscripts directly from writers unless you're in the delightful position where a publisher contacts you, but that's rare. In Australia, they do have like slush piles or submission days and you can just email your manuscript through. And the feedback I got was that an agent just takes 15%. Like why would you want to split your profits with someone when you can do that by yourself? And I suppose this comes back to the idea of what, what's your priorities exactly. and working out exactly. what you need to put first. And I was like, oh, best case scenario, someone wants my book. With what my agent can do for me, if I end up getting 8500 instead of 10k, are you kidding me? That is, of course that's worth it. And I wasn't sold until I spoke with my now agent on the phone and mm. she got my book. I would say definitely there's no point having an agent if they don't actually care about you and understand what you're trying to do with your book because then they won't be able to and won't do their job properly. So that's a huge difference. Like I I really feel like Grace is like fighting with me in my corner and I go into all these meetings with publishers with her there with me and I feel like I've got like someone backing me up, you know, like it's like this united front. And if we want to just mention for a second about imposter syndrome. Yeah. Like having someone in your corner, particularly at the beginning of your career, and particularly when you're negotiating things like money, mm. it's really good to have someone who's on your team mm. and who's supporting what you're doing. And I would even say, like, one of the reasons that I almost didn't go with an agent is because for a lot of people, when you're trying to write a book, you're signing a lot of contracts and you want to make sure that you are not getting screwed over or there's nothing weird in the contract that you didn't notice like you know rights for ebooks or overseas and all that kind of stuff and I was like well I already I've done contract law like Mm. I can read a contract oh yeah like I feel a a bit confident with that but if you don't have a parent or a 
partner or a sibling who's a lawyer, I would also, if you have the opportunity to get an agent, that would be another reason to say yes, because it's just somebody else putting their eye over everything before you put your name on the dotted line. The other thing that I would also say, which I've gotten from how you've approached things, is that there's always like slight shifting of rules. Like with Curtis Brown, if you go to their website, they're like, we only accept completed manuscripts. And if you want to submit your manuscript, we have times when we are open and you can send us the first three chapters. You know, like they have very specific... If you look at their website, they have very specific guidelines. I didn't notice that. (laughs) (laughs) Just blazed on through. (laughs) See, and I think that that's great, right? So you just inquired of your own accord. And there's many more opportunities than what you might see at the the outset. Yeah, and I will say one thing that I've learned, because I'm very new to this game as well, one thing I've learned is that there's a big difference in the process for fiction or non-fiction. So publishers won't even really look at a fiction book unless you've finished it, because it's just this not-so-crazy thing that you created in your own head. Like, they don't know how it's going to finish. Like, they don't know if you're going to change your mind. And with non-fiction people, for some reason, I don't know why, the industry prefers to, like, get on board a bit earlier. So it makes sense that I've sent out a book proposal with a couple of sample chapters because now if I go with someone, I can get an editor who helps me shape the rest of it instead of me sitting down in a black hole vacuum in my room, finishing it, and then it comes out not quite the way it should. That actually makes a lot more sense, particularly in terms of nonfiction. They can be like, uh, these subject areas, yes. how are they relevant to what's happening in society? How popular is, are these ideas going to be? Even like if you take another six months to finish this, well, then that's either really good or really bad because this other book about similarly controversial topics is coming out then or then. Like all these other considerations that make it a unique beast separate from fiction. So I should say that. But then also when I sent off that inquiry form, I already had the emails from those publishers and so I feel like I did a sneaky thing where I took a little bit of interest and took that and got an agent from that and my agent has now drummed up way more interest and it feels like this sort of like these stepping stones where I'm just like pretending I'm way more hyped than I am until like everybody else believes the charade like <laughs> well I feel like you got to take that because that's how you got to approach it and and take the things that you've been given take some interest over here move it to over here you know roll that pie into there's no that's not going anywhere good roll that pie into a bigger pie <laughs> of interest I um I did a, a workshop um, the day before yesterday called Go Get Him Tiger and it was at the a Room of One's Own part of the Emerging Writers Festival which is like for female identifying writers. The workshop was like half practical tips and half just motivational pep talk but one of the things I mentioned at the end was like okay let's talk about what you do if you do get something you apply for and what you do if you don't and what I said was like so you've applied for a festival or a fellowship or even pitched to a publisher and you get a positive response. How do you supersize that success? And that sounds so lame and it sounds like something that an American motivational speech would say, but I think it's really true. Just because somebody says yes doesn't mean that the success or the good stuff has to stop there. How do you take that little grain of moving forward and like push it and push it as far as it will take you? So I'm, we're going to finish up. I wanted to ask you, what are the biggest things you've learned in the last two months in terms of the publishing industry? That's a big question. Or if you're thinking about someone who is you six months ago, Mm. what's the kind of things that you'd be telling them about how to get to where you are? 
I can't really say what the biggest thing I've learned about in the last two months is because I have learned everything in the last two months. And so that is also the thing I would tell to six months ago me, which is that you can learn it. It's not actually super secret knowledge. Go ask people, find a support network. Don't be afraid. They're just human beings walking around like weird sacks of flesh. Like it's fine. Nobody is special. You can do it. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, it's like it's all been such a quick process for me and I have been really wonderfully supported by people I've chosen to have around me. And that's the thing too, like choose the right people to surround yourself with and know when to take their advice and when not to. I am so relieved I went in the face of what a few people told me and signed with an agent. Ask other people for advice, but then just be careful not necessarily accepting that without interrogating it a little bit further because for example like lots of people told me not to get an agent because everyone cared so much about that 15% but they didn't understand that I just came from a situation where I had plenty of money and was miserable so that was not my priority. And are there any resources online or other books that you've read that have been really helpful through the process? No it's all people. It's all people. I but think writer's that's block, Yeah but writer's block just because So that video series I did, What Is She Doing? That was for Writer's Block. And that's how I first got in contact with Liam Peeper. And then we just, like, a friendship grew out of that. And we just, like, Skyped to talk about what the next video was going to be like, blah, 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 blah. And then he became my best resource. And I only found him via Writer's Block. But also Writer's Block have this really awesome, like, monthly opportunities thing. And it's, like, the work Liam is doing there for their, like, online, online content is really exciting now. And it's a lot of writers talking about writing. Um, and it feels like a bit of a community hub. I really like it over there, like over there as if it's a physical place. <laughs> but yeah, I would say it's more people than anything else. And those people are lovely and I'm not different to anybody else listening to this. So you can ask them too. But don't ask the people that I ask because I have a monopoly on their time already. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank you very much for coming to speak with me. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And good luck for the rest of your Emerging Writers Festival And events. all those meetings. Oh and all gosh. of your meetings with publishers. I have a hot pink two-piece suit. I was going to so say, you better wear yeah, something boss. You, you just get, you get ready. You get ready. <laughs> Thanks. As I said at the top of this episode, it's now been a whole year since I recorded that interview with Brie. And it just means I'm left with so many questions. Like, did Brie manage to sell her book? If so, how much for? And most importantly, did she wear that hot pink power suit? Well, here is the lady herself, one year on, to tell us exactly what happened. So I ended up having interviews with, I think, 11 publishers about my book. And I got offers from eight different publishers, which is pretty wacky-doo, amazing, super stoked. The way it works is that my agent then got those publishers to bid against each other to see who the highest bidder was. And I ended up signing a book deal for twice the amount that I was initially offered before I had an agent. So in my opinion, absolutely, my agent is amazing and totally earned her keep, but also just made that whole process a lot more streamlined and enjoyable for me instead of me having to hustle for myself. It's not like necessary that you pick the publisher that bids the highest amount, but for me, I was very fortunate that my first preference of publisher was also the publisher that offered the highest amount, and that sort of also communicated to me that that publisher valued my book the most. 
which was a really beautiful and awesome coincidence. And I chose Alan and Unwin mainly because Jane Palfreyman at Alan and Unwin had just published Charlotte Wood's The Natural Way of Things and also Clementine Ford's first book, Fight Like a Girl. And I just think that she's a badass woman who I would love to be my publisher. And so I went with her. My book is about some like scary and serious stuff. And Jane Palfreyman was just, yeah, like ready to go on that ride with me. And yeah, my book, Eggshell Skull, should be out next year through Alan and Unwin. There you go, people. That is how the first book, Sausage, gets sausaged. And can we please just get a fuck yeah for Brie? Because fuck yeah. As always, for anything that was mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes. You can find them on our website, starvingartistpodcast.com. And I have another small little update. I am moving to officially putting out episodes every fortnight instead of every week. Since the success of this podcast, I've had like way more work on. Who would have thought that a successful project and offers of work would go hand in hand? And so I had an epiphany last week whilst crying in my boyfriend's lounge room about how just fucking tired and stressed I am. I realized it was ironic that a project which is largely about creating a sustainable work life would be the thing (laughs) making an unsustainable work life for myself. So I thought I should take my own advice and stop being such a hypocrite (laughs) and move to putting out the rest of the episodes for the first season of Starving Artist every two weeks. If you want to know exactly when each of them comes out, you want a little reminder in your email inbox, sign up to the mailing list at starvingartistpodcast.com. You can also, of course, come stalk me and talk to me about sustainability and Murakami on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the like. Editing help for this episode was provided by Peter C. Hayward. The intro music is by myself. This podcast, as always, was made possible by everyone who supports me on Patreon. You can support me making this podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash Easley. Or you can just, like, tell your friends. That's actually a really great way of supporting this podcast if you think it's a valuable thing in the world. Love and realizing you are steering your own damn ship. which means you can change stuff, right? I don't know how I seem to always forget that. Till next time. Bye-bye.